Uh, take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 14. You may already be there already, but... Uh, Hard to believe we've been in Revelation, what, about a year? I think we started a little over a year. I think we started in September of last year. So, and 27 in, a little past halfway mark. All right, Revelation chapter 14. Uh, I'll be reading the first five verses, and that's what we'll look at tonight. So here we go. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, And before the elders, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless." So just a little bit of a recap from two, yeah, two weeks ago. Um, we looked at the last half of Revelation 13 and the second beast. Uh, the second beast who is the beast from the earth. Uh, this is the second, of course, of two beasts. Because if I say second, that implies that there was a first. So this is the second of two beasts that the dragon, who is, who's the dragon? The devil, right, Satan. So these are two beast that Satan, the dragon, calls forth to assist him in his ongoing war with the offspring of the woman who is the church. So Satan calls a couple of his buddies to help him out. He calls the first beast from the sea, the second beast from the earth. Now, whereas the first beast comes from the sea and represents a combination of all the beasts that we see in Daniel's vision in chapter 7, we looked at that in a little bit of detail uh, when we looked at the first beast. The first beast combines aspects of all the beasts that Daniel sees in chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts rising up out of the sea. And these four beasts represent four successive kingdoms or kings or governments or world empires. And this beast that we see in Revelation 13 combines all of them together. So it's a more hideous beast. The second beast comes from the earth and resembles a lamb. And we looked at that, and a lamb is peaceful. A lamb is kind of dumb. A lamb is docile. A lamb suggests sort of peace, but then we saw that he speaks like, a, a, like the dragon. He speaks like the dragon. So it's, the tradition, you know, it's sort of the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. And he also resembles, in a sense, Jesus, because Jesus is described at various points in Revelation as the lamb. So he comes as a lamb, but he speaks like the dragon. Now, both beasts 
represent, or sorry, receive power from the dragon, and they both resemble the dragon. Again, the first beast resembles the dragon in his appearance. The dragon had seven heads and ten horns. The beast has seven heads and ten horns. The second beast resembles the dragon, as we said, in his speech. It spoke like a dragon. So again, the first beast represents all the world governments aligned and arrayed against God's people. And this is seen in the fact that the dragon gives to the first beast its power. The first beast has multiple heads and many crowns. And even uh, one of its own heads appears to have died, but comes back from the dead. And the first beast demands worship from those who dwell on the earth. Those are unbelievers. And it makes war with the saints, those who dwell in heaven. And the power that the first beast exercises and the war that he wages lasts for a very definite period of time, 42 months, which we're calling the church age. The 42 months is the same as the 1,260 days we've seen repeated all throughout Revelation. That is the first beast. The second beast, of course, represents false religion and false philosophy and is often called the false prophet. So the second beast is typically referred to as the false prophet. Now his job is to point to the first beast. So he draws all the attention of the world to the first beast. He is essentially sort of like the propaganda arm of the first beast. And he works, we saw last time, he works mighty signs and mighty wonders. And these could actually be real miracles. They could just be parlor tricks. They could be like David Copperfield making an elephant disappear kind of tricks or things like that. Illusions, whatever. Well, whatever he does is designed to get people to go to the first beast, to worship the first beast. In fact, he even causes them to worship an image of the first beast. So they're idolatrous. A false prophet makes everyone receive the sign or the mark of the beast, indicating the ownership of the first beast over those people who have received the mark. So the mark is not, you know, as we said, it's not microchips in the COVID vaccine. The mark of the beast is not some barcode they're going to put on your arm. The mark of the beast is symbolic and it means ownership. It means that the first beast owns you because you allow it to have power over you. You give in to it. You succumb to it. You worship it. Now, the mark serves to discriminate against the saints because only those who have the mark are allowed to engage in commerce. Right? The mark allows them to buy and sell and trade, and those who don't have the mark are not allowed to do that. So this is a way to discriminate against those who don't have the mark, which would be the believers. And then finally, we saw that the mark is the same as the name of the beast, is the same as the number of his name, which was 666. And if you remember when we looked at that, <clears throat> there's all kinds of theories as to what the 666 means. Some think it means Nero, and certainly Nero was a representation of the first beast. Some think it means Hitler. Hitler could have been a representation of the first beast. Some thought it was Ronald Reagan. I'm not sure if I would qualify Ronald Reagan as a representation of the first beast. But then there were some, because of working through numbers and everything and trying to calculate, some person came up that Barney the Purple Dinosaur could be warped into 666. So like I said last time, 
any theory that says that the beast can be Nero, Hitler, Reagan, or Barney the Purple Dinosaur, I think we should probably rightly ignore. No, the mark of the beast was the mark of a man. That's what it says. It is the mark of a man. And the, the number of man is six. And six was not seven. And seven is what? Perfection, completeness, wholeness. So the beast, his mark, his name falls short. And it doesn't just fall short once, it falls short in a sense three times. He is never going to come to perfection. They are imperfect, incomplete, never reaching perfection. So that's our recap of last time. Now as we head into this passage here, Revelation 14, we are now coming to the last segment of this particular cycle, which is called by many scholars the symbolic histories. And I've gone over that. Uh, it's the third cycle in Revelation. Between Revelation 4 and Revelation 20, we have seven cycles of visions. This is the third one. And it's called the symbolic histories because it looks at the broad 30,000-foot view of redemptive history, looking at history through these images, through these, um, the images of these individuals. So the dragon, the woman, the child, the first beast, the second beast, and now we're going to see the 144,000. And you may be thinking, well, pastor, we saw the 144,000 some time ago, back in Revelation chapter 7. And you'd be right, because we did see the 144,000 then. And they are representative of the complete number of the saints. It's not a literal 144,000 people. If you think it's a literal 144,000 people, you are either in the dispensational camp or you're in the Jehovah's Witness camp. <laughs> right? Either one, I'm not, I'm not sure I want to be in either camp. Okay? It's a representative number. If you remember what it's a representative number of, uh, you have 144,000 can break down to 12 times 12 times 1,000. And 12 is the number of God's people, right? You have 12 tribes of Israel. You have 12 disciples, 12 and 12. And then 1,000 just means to the superlative degree, to the highest amount. So the complete number of God's people. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Now, the rest of chapter 14 shows us three angels who bring messages to those who dwell on the earth. And then in the last section, verses uh, 14 through 20, we're going to see the second coming, the end of everything. All of these cycles, all seven of these cycles, end with the return of Jesus. That's how we know that this, the cycles in Revelation are sort of repeating they're recapitulating. They're looking at the same period of time, the church age, from different vantage points. And if you remember my illustration of that, is you're watching the football game and you, you see a wonderful scoring play, but they have to review it because they review every scoring play now in the NFL and in college, right? So you're getting all these views. You get the, the sideline view. You get the overhead view. You get the behind the player's view. You get the end zone view. They're all showing you the same play, but you're seeing the same play from different vantage points. That's what's happening in Revelation. Revelation is showing you the same period of time. The time between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus to the time of his return. This entire period of time. But it's showing it to you from different vantage points. <coughs> Excuse me. So here, 
And each one of these cycles ends with the return of Christ. So we'll see the end, the great harvest of the earth in, in the, at the end of chapter 14. But the purpose of this next vision is to show us that despite all of the machinations of the two beasts, false government or evil world governments and the false prophet, uh, despite all of their workings, all of their scheming, all of their planning, uh, the, uh, the, between the two beasts and the dragon who's behind the scenes empowering them, the people of God are going to be victorious because they are with the Lamb. The Lamb has called them out. The Lamb has redeemed them. And they are sealed by God. They are sealed with the name of God and the name of the Lamb on their foreheads. So we are victorious despite everything that's going on in the world, everything that's going on with what we see here in these things where the, the beast is waging war, and the second beast is causing them to, to not be able to engage in any kind of commerce, we are still victorious. So again, this passage, as I said, is about the 144,000. And it can break down into three parts, which you have on your handout there. Verse 1, we're going to look at the Lamb and the 144,000. In verses 2 and 3, we're going to see the 144,000 singing a new song in heaven. And then verses 4 and 5, and I wish I would have saw this after I wrote it, but um, one commentary had the character of the 144,000. I think it's a better word than quality. But the quality or the character, the characteristics of the 144,000 in verses 4 and 5. All right, let's, let's move forward. Uh, the Lamb and the 144,000, verse 1. So again, John begins this passage with the familiar formula that we see him use throughout the book that indicates he is seeing a new vision where he says, then I looked and behold. You know, we see this again in verse 6, then I saw. Verse 14, then I looked and behold. Verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, then I saw another sign. So John is just receiving these series of visions. So here is a new vision in verse 1 where he says, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So after seeing in the previous passage an image of all those who dwell on the earth worshiping the beast, receiving his mark, John now gets a vision of Mount Zion. And upon Mount Zion is the Lamb and the saints, the 144,000. Now, what does this imagery of seeing Mount Zion mean? The first time we see Mount Zion is all the way back in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7. We're not going to turn there, but basically that's where David is now the king of a united Israel. David begins 2 Samuel by being crowned king of Judah, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, and then he has to do a little bit of fighting with Ishbosheth and, and those guys. But then finally he defeats them. And then now David is united. He's united all the tribes of Israel under him. And now he wants to go and drive out the Jebusites. Now the Jebusites are living in Jerusalem, which is where? On top of Mount Zion. So they go up to Mount Zion. There's a citadel there, a stronghold there where the Jebusites are. And the Jebusites are kind of daring them. It's like, you can't take us. 
And David says, watch me, I'll take you. And he goes up there and he thrashes the Jebusites, takes over Jerusalem, establishes it as the capital of his new kingdom. So David and his men are seeking to drive the Jebusites out. They have a stronghold and he takes it over. And then Zion begins to be used uh, as not only the capital of, of, of where Jerusalem sits, but it, it starts to become synonymous with Jerusalem itself. So, you know, I can't think of another analogy, but instead of just, you know, Jerusalem is a city that sits atop Mount Zion, but then when they say, let's go to Zion, it's almost saying, like, let's go to Jerusalem. And then eventually it becomes uh, synonymous with the entire nation of Israel itself. We see this in Psalm 149, verse 2. Zion is metaphorical of the place where God works his mighty works. Psalm 14, 7 uh, indicates that. If you were to look there, you can turn there if you like. But Psalm 14, 7 um, says at the end of that, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Salvation comes out of Zion. Why? Because that's where God dwells. Eventually, they build the temple in Zion. That's God's house. God's house dwells on God's mountain. So Zion is God's mountain. Now, with everything going on, um, is what we see here in Revelation 14 is Jesus, depicted as the Lamb, is He literally standing on top of Mount Zion which is found in Palestine. What do you think? Given everything we've seen so far about the visions in Revelation, do you think Jesus is literally standing atop Mount Zion in, in Palestine? I'm seeing some heads shake. It's in heaven, exactly. Yeah, this is not the literal Mount Zion in Palestine. This is representative of heaven. Again, remember, Revelation is apocalyptic prophecy. Okay, that means it's prophetic, for one thing, and apocalyptic means, if you were to ask me, my, my definition of apocalyptic, apo- apocalyptic is kind of weird. <laughs> it uses weird images. But these images are used by the person receiving the visions and the dreams to describe reality. He, des- he is describing real things through visions. So the imagery we see here should draw our attention to passages that we see such as in Psalm 2. Now you can turn to Psalm 2 because I'm going to read all of Psalm 2 if you'd like. So keep your finger in Revelation 14 and flip over to Psalm chapter 2. This should be a fairly familiar psalm. Uh, Psalms 1 and 2 sort of form an introduction to the entire Psalter. Um, and Psalm 2 is, is um, often referred to as a messianic psalm, as a psalm of Jesus. And in Psalm 2, we read, the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, word for Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So here, very similar to what you will see in various parts in Revelation, the amassed armies of the world, 
the unbelieving world and all their kings and kingdoms and armies and so on and so forth have arrayed themselves to attack God. They're coming to God and I'm sure God is trembling, right? What does it say in verse 4? He who sits in the heaven... Oh wait, he's laughing. He's not trembling. God is not trembling over the assembled might of the world. He is laughing at them. He holds them in derision. It's like, what do you guys think you are doing? I created all of you. I breathe into your nostrils the breath of life. And you dare come to me with your piddly little weapons and machines of war? Ha, 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 ha. He laughs. Okay, probably not like that. Probably not with a sore throat. He probably laughs much more majestically. He holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. Now he's angry. And terrify them in his fury, saying, okay, so now he turns on them and he starts to make the world tremble. He says, as for me, I have set my king where? On Zion, my holy hill. So God is in heaven in Zion, on his holy hill. And then he goes on, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So here we have a picture of God on Mount Zion with His anointed, His Son, Jesus Christ. And He says, I have set My King on My holy hill. So as the gathered forces of humanity rage against God, He laughs and declares that He has already set a king. And He is on His holy hill in Zion. It also draws our attention to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. In particular, verse 22. But um, I'm going to start reading in verse 18. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. We're talking about a, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So he tells, the writer tells the, the, his audience, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But what the author is referring to here is he's referring to Mount Sinai. Right? When the Israelites were gathered at the base of Mount Sinai and God appears in the cloud on top of Mount Sinai right before Moses goes up to get the law, the people of God are sitting there at the base and they see the thunderings and the lightnings and they fear and they tremble and they don't want to go up the mountain. And I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to go up the mountain where God is in my own righteousness. They are unclothed in that sense. So here the author is saying, you have not come to that mountain. You have not come to the mountain that cannot be touched with all this blazing fire, so on and so forth. For they could not even endure, verse 20, they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So here he's saying, look, that's Mount Sinai. 
That's the world. Okay? He says, no, you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I like that verse, that last one there. The blood of, the blood of Jesus speaks a word. The word is forgiveness. The blood of Abel speaks what word? What word do you think the blood of Abel speaks? Vengeance, exactly, right. Abel's blood cried out to God for vengeance for his brother who killed him, but the blood of Jesus speaks a more better word. It speaks a word of forgiveness. My blood was shed so that you can be forgiven. So he makes a comparison here. It's like, you have not come to Mount Sinai, you've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the, the city of the living God. And later on in this passage, Mount Zion is described as a mountain that cannot be shaken because it's referring to a prophecy from the book of Haggai that says one more time, the, the world will be shaken, but Mount Zion cannot be shaken because Mount Zion is not of this world. Mount Zion is of the world to come and the, the things of the world to come cannot be shaken. Only the things of this world can be shaken. So all that to say, Mount Zion in view here is heaven. The Mount Zion that we see in Revelation 14, which you can go back to now, is in heaven. And where, this is where God resides. This is where the Lamb is. And so upon Mount Zion is the Lamb. Now we know from um, Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, that the Lamb, of course, is Jesus, right? You know, the classic Sunday school answer. The Lamb is Jesus. And in Revelation 5, 6, that's the scene in the, in the court, in the, in the throne room where um, the Ancient of Days is sitting there on the throne and he has a scroll in his hand and no one can open the scroll and everyone starts to despair because no one can be found worthy to open the scroll except for the Lamb, the one who is the line of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who, is, who appears as if slain. Now it's interesting. Here's this kind of picture of the victorious Lamb on Mount Zion as the world is doing all their things. Now I always found it interesting. It's like, why do we see Jesus here as the Lamb? Why don't we see Jesus as the Lion from the tribe of Judah on, on the mountain ready to pounce? <laughs> You know, ready to pounce on the world below him. Why the lamb and not the lion? And I think the answer to this is found just a little bit later because the emphasis here is on Jesus' redemptive work, right? These are the ones who are redeemed from the world. We see this in verse 3. The 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So here we see the lamb in his sort of redemptive imagery as, as the lamb who was slain and with those for whom he had been slain, those who he has, he has redeemed out of the world. So as we saw, the lamb is also accompanied here on Mount Zion by the very 144,000 that he has redeemed from the earth. As we said earlier, we, we've seen these people before, the 144,000 back in Revelation 7, that is the picture of the church, as we call it, the church militant. 
the church militant. If you remember that description, we made a distinction, church militant, church triumphant. The church militant is the church here on earth, militant because we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And in Revelation 7, 8, you see how the 144,000 are numbered, 12,000 for each tribe in, in, in uh, Israel. Though some names are missing and some names are added that shouldn't be there. But the point is, is there, it's, that numbering is like what you see in the book of Numbers, where Israel is numbered according to their fighting men. So here we see the 144,000 are sort of like God's army arrayed in battle formation. That's why they are the church militant. And again, the 144,000 symbolizes the complete number of God's people. And I'm not going to rehash all that material on, on, on why we, we come to that conclusion. Um, you can look at, I think the, the lesson we did that on was back on May 16th, 2021. It was the 15th episode or the 15th lesson we did in this. Uh, but like I said before, 12, 12 times 1,000, 12 for the Old Testament tribes of, of Israel, 12 for the New Testament uh, disciples of Jesus, 1,000 to mark the highest degree. So these are the people of God, the complete number of them. But I want you to notice two things. <clears throat> First, note how John sees the 144,000 here with the name of the Lamb, and of the Father written on their foreheads. And again, back in Revelation 7, these 144,000 were sealed. They were sealed by God. And again, this writing of the names uh, or this idea of being sealed signifies the idea, again, of ownership. You, you mark, you put, you know, put it this way. You know, I have a lot of books. If I'm going to loan out a book, I may put my name in the book to make sure that I'll get it back because it's, this is my book. Right, you know, sometimes you put names on on your items. You know, if you know, if you're a, kind of a a mother that likes to put the name on your kids' clothing so they don't get mixed up with other kids' clothing, you put your name on something to signify ownership, but also protection. The seal is also marking protection as well. And then we argued back then, of course, back in May, that the saints were sealed and protected from the wrath of God because that. That image in Revelation 7 is sort of an interlude vision that we saw during the seals on the scroll being broken. So between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, we get this vision of the 144,000 in Revelation 7. So it's to mark that these people are not going to be facing the wrath of God like everyone else is. They are sealed from the wrath of God. They are protected. And here are the names of Jesus and the Father written on their foreheads is a contrast to what we see in the previous chapter in verse 16, where the people who dwell on the earth, they have the mark of the beast written on their, on their right hands and written on their foreheads. So whereas the people on the earth receive the mark of the beast, the, the people of God, the 144,000, have the seal, the name of God in Christ on their heads. So it's a contrast. You're either, you're either marked, you either, have, you either have the mark of the beast or you have the seal of God. That's, that's kind of what we're seeing here. There are just two types of people in the world, those who have the seal and those who have the mark. The second thing I want you to notice about the 144,000 is notice how it is 44,000. 
right? It is not 130,000. It is not 140,000. It is not 143,999. It is 144,000. It's all of them. Jesus is able to save how many of his sheep? All of his sheep. Not most of his sheep. Not some of his sheep. Not half of his sheep. Not a third of his sheep. He saves all of his sheep. John chapter 10, where he says in that great speech where he's talking about he is the great shepherd. He says, no one can snatch my sheep out of my hand. And then he goes on to say, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And then he goes on to say, I and the father are one. And then the Jews want to pick up stones to stone him because he equates himself to God. But the point that Jesus is making is like, I have died for my sheep, or I will lay down my life for my sheep, and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. So I will die for the 144,000, and guess how many are going to be with me on top of Mount Zion? 144,000. Not a single one will be missing. Now again, I find that comforting. How many of you find that comforting? I find that a very comforting thought because that means if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are guaranteed salvation. He will bring you through to the end. Think of all the promises of Scripture that talk about that. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will maybe complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. No, He will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. God has saved us. God preserves us. We are sealed and marked and um, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us, Ephesians says, as a guarantee, as a down payment. Right? And if God makes a down payment, you can bet your bottom dollar He's going to pay the full amount. He's not going to leave a down payment out there hanging. He's not going to leave a debt hanging. God, no one, God owes no one anything. So He will save us. He loses none of His sheep. In fact, you, know, you can think of the, the parable of the, the hundred sheep, right? In Luke 15, where Jesus tells three parables to the Pharisees to um, kind of cure their grumbling. They were grumbling because Jesus was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. They're like, why are you hanging out with those losers? And Jesus tells them parables. And he's like, look, a shepherd has 100 sheep. If he loses one, he's going to leave the 99 and go search out the, the 100th one. Now, in reality, no shepherd would really kind of do that, right? If they lost one sheep, they're not going to just leave the 99 by themselves. But the point is that Jesus is saying there's, look, the, the, the kind of shepherd that I am, I go and find those lost sheep. And I will bring them back so that I have my complete fold. I'm not going to let anyone escape. I will grab them and I will make sure they are still with me. Same thing with the woman and the lost coin. Same thing with the prodigal son. They all tell the same story. Jesus searches out those who are his and he relentlessly pursues them until they are his. So he is indeed the good shepherd. Okay, let's look now at verses 2 and 3. As we see, after the Lamb and the 144,000 top 
the heavenly Mount Zion, John hears a voice, or what sounds like a voice in verses 2 and 3. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of thunder, loud thunder. <coughs> Excuse me. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they, that is the 144,000, were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one can learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now again, I like the way John, <laughs> you know, when he sees these visions, he's like, look, I heard this, it sounded like this, I saw this, it looked like that, like, 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 like. Okay, so he, again, remember, he's, he's hearing things and he's seeing things. These are visions and he's saying, okay, it's, I, I, okay I, I, this is the best way I'm going to describe it to you. It sounds like this. It kind of looks like this. You know, and that's, that's kind of what John is going through here. So the voice John hears, again, sounds like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. And again, this kind of draws our attention, kind of reminds us of how we saw earlier in Revelation when John gets the vision of the exalted Jesus and he hears the voice behind him. It says it sounds like thunder, sounds like the roar of many waters. Uh, moreover, the voice also sound like harpists playing their harps. I wonder if this is where they get the image of when we go to heaven, we're all going to be little cherub angels with our little wings playing harps on clouds. I, I, I don't know, but anyway, the, he's, it sounds like water, sounds like thunder, but it also sounds like harp playing. I'm not sure what to make of that. <laughs> what, you know, it's like a, you know, it's like a Jeopardy question, right? Uh, the answer is, what sounds like thunder and roaring water, but also sounds like a harp? You know, uh, the answer, Alex, is the 144,000 singing their new song. Now, again, it's really difficult how to describe what John hears, but harpists don't sound ominous. When I hear a harp, I think of something peaceful or joyful. If I'm watching a sitcom, a harp usually signifies a flashback scene, right? You hear the the harp, and it means that you're going to the flashback scene. But it, it, it does remind me in the, uh, the incident that we see in Exodus 32, right? So you remember Exodus 32, that's the infamous uh, incident of the golden calf. Now, where's Moses during all of this? He's up on Mount Sinai, right? He's receiving the law from the Lord. What are the people doing? They're, they're, <laughs> they're doing what they should not be doing. Right? The people get a little impatient. They're like, Aaron, where's your brother? He's up on, he's on Sinai. Well, we haven't seen him for a long, long, long time. And we're starting to get a little anxious here. So we want you to make us some gods. Aaron's like, that's kind of a bad idea. I don't think I want to do that. No, make us some gods. He's like, okay, all right. Well, take all the gold, take your earrings and bracelets off, throw it into the fire, and then we'll make this calf. And then they start worshiping the calves. Now, God tells Aaron, or Moses on the mountain, he's like, uh, Moses, you need to go down. We've got a code blue down in the camp. Stat, you need to get down there because the people are engaging in some serious idolatry. So Moses is like, got it, God, I'm going down. And as he's going down, he, hear, he runs into Joshua, his buddy. And Joshua's like, I hear the sound of war in the camp. And Moses is like, no, that is not the sound of war. That is the sound of people partying, but they're not doing anything good. So it's kind of like that. It's not the sound of war, but of singing. And here, the 144,000 are singing 
It was a new song they were singing. They were singing before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. So they're the saints of the Lamb are singing their new song before the Father and they're singing the song before the heavenly host. The four living creatures are the cherubim. The, the elders are the angelic representatives of God's people. And whenever God performs some redemptive work on behalf of His people, they sing a new song. We see new songs being lauded all throughout the Psalms where we see singing of new songs. Psalm 33 encourages us to sing a new song. We see in Psalm 33, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to Him with the harp of ten strings. There's harps again. Verse 3, Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. When God delivered the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt and drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, what did the people do? They sang a new song, exactly. Gen- or Genesis. Exodus 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, and then it goes on, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. And he goes on and describes all of the glorious acts that God has done to save, to redeem, to rescue His people. A new song. God's redemptive acts are worthy of new songs. Many of our psalms enjoin the people of God to sing a new song to the Lord. And the reason for the new song that these saints in Revelation 14 are singing is because they have been redeemed from the earth. We saw there in verse 3. The 144,000 sing this song. They are the ones who have been redeemed from the earth. And because of this redemption... The redeemed sing before God and the hosts of heaven. But it is only a song that the 144,000 can learn. The only one who can sing a song of redemption is one who has been redeemed. Those who dwell on the earth, uh, the unbelievers, the one who bear, those who bear the mark of the beast cannot take part in this song. They are not part of the song. They cannot learn the song. That's not because the lyrics are in some foreign language. They are not redeemed. They just they, they don't have the experience of redemption. Those who dwell on the earth are having their fun now. Right? Their moment in the sun now is what they're having. Right? That's what Jesus says when, you know, for those who seek worldly riches, it's like if you seek worldly riches, you're going to have your reward now. But if you give those up, you'll get reward later. You'll get your reward from God. Seek first the kingdom of God, then He will add these things unto you. So what's happening with the people who dwell on the earth? 
They are seeking the reward now. They are seeking their fun now. They are jo- they're, they're reveling and, and rejoicing now. Think of what happened in Noah's day, right? I mean, I, I can't imagine what, must, what life must have been like for Noah, right? So, I mean, how many people were saved when Noah built the ark? Eight, right? Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, plus a bunch of animals. But people, eight people. And Noah's sitting there building his ark, right? And the people coming by are like, Noah, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. Why are you building an ark? Because God is going to rain judgment. I'm like, what? What's rain? I mean, they haven't had rain yet. So they're like, you know, what is rain? What are you talking about, Moses? You're crazy. There's no water here, and you're building a giant boat. I don't get it. So then what we see later on in the New Testament, right, is like, just like in those days, in Noah's days, what were they doing? They were eating. They were drinking. They were giving in marriage and marrying right up until the moment the rains started to fall. So that's what the people who dwell on the earth are doing. Those who have the mark of the beast, they are eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage right up until the point where Jesus will return and bring judgment. They are having their fun now. They are eating their cake now. So the new song here speaks of God's saving works so that only those who have benefited from those saving works can sing this song. And now finally, in verses 4 and 5, the quality or the character of the 144,000. So after describing the song that they're singing, John goes on to describe the quality or the character of the 144,000. And he describes this quality or character in three ways. Look at the very, very first part. And you can kind of see how it's structured, right? Where he says in verse 4, it is these who, and then later on, it is these who, and then these have. So whenever you see that word these, he is describing a different characteristic. That's how it's structured there. So in the very first part of verse 4, the first characteristic, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. So the first quality of the 144,000 is they, are, they have not defiled themselves with women, they are virgins. Now, you might be saying, Pastor, wait a minute. I thought you said the 144,000 represents all of the redeemed. But here it sounds like the 144,000 are just a collection of virgin men. What's going on here? Well, again, remember, what's, what type of literature is Revelation? It is apocalyptic prophecy. So the images here are not meant to be taken literally, right? They are not meant to be taken in a woodenly literal sense. So we're not talking about 144,000 virgin men. The idea here uh, is that whatever John is describing here is best conveyed by the idea symbolized by the 144,000 being depicted as virgin men. Now, let's, let's do a little thinking here. Let's put our thinking caps on. In the Bible, sexual immorality is often used symbolically to describe what? Well, sin, yeah, but what type of sin? If, if, you're, being, if you're committing adultery, you're being unfaithful to your wife. So, what is spiritual adultery? Unfaithfulness to God. Unfaithfulness to God. There's a word for that. 
begins with I. Idolatry. Idolatry, right. So sexual immorality is used metaphorically in the Bible to describe idolatry, right? The, the great example of that is in the book of Hosea. Hosea is told by God, his life becomes a sort of um, walking parable, if you will. He's told to marry a woman of whoredom. <laughs> okay, he's told to marry a harlot. And then he lived, you know, and then, you know, the message is that just as your harlot wife has been treating you, Hosea, that's how the people of God have been treating me. They whore after other gods. They go after other idols. They have committed sexual immorality, i.e. they have committed adultery. They've committed idolatry. They chase after other gods. So it's an imagery of idolatry. Now, let's keep with that image of sexual immorality or adultery being idolatry. Um, a virgin then would be symbolic of what? Purity, right? Someone who avoids sexual immorality and who remains undefiled. And in this context, one who is not committed idolatry. Now, in the sense of what we're seeing here in Revelation 13, 14, the idolatrous people are those who have received the mark of the beast. They worship the beast, not God. So here, the 144,000 are depicted as undefiled virgins because they have not received the mark of the beast. They have not worshipped the beast. They worship God. They, have, they remain pure. They have not engaged in any false worship. And they have avoided all forms of spiritual idolatry in the world. In fact, later on in Revelation, the church itself is depicted as a pure and chaste bride of Christ in Revelation 19. She is the bride who, is, who comes and gives herself to Christ, the bridegroom. And that is set in contrast to Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. Babylon is described as a harlot. So Babylon is descriptive of the world in, in, in the harlotry and the, all the kinds of idolatry and things that go on in the world, whereas the church is depicted as a pure, chaste bride. So the 144,000 are not like Babylon. They are like the bride. The 144,000 are not those who engage in false worship or idolatry. They, are, they have remained undefiled. They remain pure. And again, we see this um, in the Old Testament reference to the people of God um, as the camp of the Israelites was to be kept pure, particularly as Israel fights for God. We see this in Deuteronomy 23 uh, verses 9 through 11 where the people are to refrain from any kind of um, sexual immorality and if any of them have any kind of, you know, the, the Bible uses words like nocturnal emissions. So if, if they do anything that makes them unclean, they have to remove themselves from the camp. They cannot be in the camp of God's people if they are unclean in any way. And David, when he goes, uh, when he's on the run and he goes to the temple and he goes to the priest and says, give me the showbread, he tells the priest, like, look, I have not defiled myself with any woman. I've kept myself pure. In other words, if you are going to fight for God, you have to be pure. You have to be clean, not unclean. That's the first description. Second description of the 144,000 we see in the middle of verse 4. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. 
Okay, that's, that's a pretty easy thing to understand, right? The 144,000 follow the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus. So the, the saints follow Jesus. Now, if you remember, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, um, this is the most basic definition of a Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian is one who follows Jesus, right? Where, wherever he goes. <laughs> that is the most basic definition of a disciple. But again, notice that John says they follow the Lamb wherever he goes, right? So if we you know, think about Psalm 23, the Lamb or the shepherd, of course, really, the, you know, Christ is a shepherd. He leads the shepherds to, to clean water. He leads the shepherds to, to find pasture. He makes them lie down in, in restfulness. But he also leads them where? Into the valley of the shadow of death. And you know, as the shepherd goes through, the sheep have to follow. Now, the reason why we can go through the valley of the shadow of death is because the shepherd is there. Right? Your rod, your staff, they bring me comfort. So even though Jesus is seen as a lamb, he's also the shepherd who leads his sheep. And he leads his sheep and we have to follow wherever he goes. Jesus uses this imagery again in John chapter 10, the good shepherd uh, uh, dialogue as well, where he says, the sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I call them by name. So Jesus, as the good shepherd, knows his sheep by name. He calls them, and they hear, and they follow. He says, a stranger's voice, they will not follow. They're not going to follow a voice they don't recognize. They're going to follow the voice of the shepherd. And similarly, the 144,000 hear the voice of the shepherd, and they follow him and him only. They do not follow the voice of a stranger. So that's the second description, a little shorter than the first one. Third one, this will be a little longer, but not too much. The third and final description we see in the last part of verse 4 and into verse 5. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So again, the 144,000 are those who have been redeemed or bought from Mankind, Jesus purchases them with his precious blood, as we see in other places in Scripture. Ephesians 1.6, we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, bought out of slavery to sin into his kingdom. And out of all of mankind, the 144,000 are seen here as the first fruits for God and for the Lamb. This is the same thing that the Apostle uh, James says in James 1.18, where he says there, sorry, I've got to find it. In James 1.18, he says, of his own will, that's God, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So in James 1.18, he's saying, God uses the word of God the word of truth, to bring us forth out so that we can be a, a sort of the first fruits of all of his creatures. So we are God's portion. That's what the first fruits are. We are God's portion. We are God's share. 
Now, again, we've talked about this concept of the first fruits before. It's a very popular and biblical thought. Uh, farmers are very familiar with the notion of first fruits. Now, if we see here the 144,000 as the first fruits, what does that imply? What do you think that implies? Yeah, the full harvest is yet to come. So there is a further harvest yet to come. The idea of the first fruits is that you give to God the first and best of your crop, which then you offer to God, and then you wait and you trust God to provide the rest of the harvest. They didn't harvest like we do today, right? You know, they harvest by hand, not with giant, massive six or 12-row combines. So, it would seem to imply that if the 144,000 are the first fruits, there's perhaps a later harvest that the Lord, you know, that the Lord engages in when he returns. In fact, that's what we see later on in the chapter, right? Verses 14 through 20, we see two harvests here. We see, uh, we see the Son of Man putting in his sickle and reaping for the hour to come is reap, and the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And then we see another angel coming out with a sharp sickle, and he gathers the grapes. And the grapes, they get trampled. That's where you get the title, the grapes of wrath. They get trampled on in the wine press of God. So some will say, so the 144,000 of the first fruits, the rest of the harvest comes here in Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16. Now, there's some really good commentators that say that, and I'm, I feel like I'm off on an island here, but I want to resist that line of thought. And I want to resist that line of thought for one big reason. Because what have we been arguing that the 144,000 are? But more, uh, more specifically, what's that? All of God's chosen, right? The full number of the elect. So if the 144,000 are the full number of the elect, then what, what would the further harvest be? If you've got all of the elect in the 144,000, what would the rest of the harvest be? More saved that aren't included in the 144,000? I mean, the 144,000 is all the saved. So, I think if we look closely at, at verse 4, that last half of verse 4, we see again, what does it say here? Um, These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. I'm emphasizing those very specifically. <clears throat> so the, the 144,000 are the first fruits from all of mankind. And they serve here then as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. Again, they are God's portion of humanity. So all of humanity is a harvest. God takes the 144,000 for himself as the first fruits. The rest are left for Satan and for everyone else. The portion that is left for the earth. They are left for the dragon and for his two beasts. So the first fruits are for God and the Lamb. They are God's portion of humanity. The rest belong to Satan. And again, I think this is consistent with what we see in the Old Testament practice. You give the first fruits of your crop to God. The rest belongs to you. So here, God takes his portion out of humanity, the 144,000. The rest, well, they're, 
They're going to be the grapes that are trampled. And I think then what you see later in Revelation 14 is just sort of like a reworking of the, of the two harvests, not an additional harvest on top of the first fruits here. We'll get to that when we get there. But I'm trying, what I'm trying to really emphasize here is that the 144,000 are the full number of God's elect. There are no more to come later. And then finally, we just see here at the end in verse 5 that they're in their mouth is no lie found and they are blameless. And again, this is language that is used again to describe sort of like the idea of sexual purity. Uh, they do not defile themselves with speech because lies represent what? Lies represent Satan, right? Satan is the father of lies. The, the false prophet speaks like a dragon. So lies are representative of Satan and his kingdom. Here, the 144,000 resemble the lamb because all they do is speak the truth and in their mouth was found no lie. So, the, so just as the beasts resemble the dragon, the 144,000 resemble the lamb. I could go on. There's a little bit more here, but I, I think I'll stop here because um, that pretty much takes us to the end. So again, to wrap up here, <clears throat> what we see in this passage here is um, just as we've been seeing these symbolic figures, the dragon, the woman, the child, the first beast, the second beast, here we are seeing the 144,000. These are people that are uh, sealed by God. They are, they are redeemed out of the world. They do not defile themselves. They do not, uh, either in work or deeds or in their speech, and they are the ones who follow the Lamb. Now again, you have to understand, this idea of not defiling yourselves, no lie found in their mouth. The redeemed, right, we, we sin, right? right? We sin, we don't do everything perfectly. So it's not meant to indicate that the, the 144,000 are blameless in the sense that they're perfect. They are blameless in the sense that they are sealed by the Lamb. They are covered by the Lamb's righteousness because when God looks on them, he doesn't see their actions. He sees Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Christ. We are righteous not because we are blameless. We are righteous because we have an imputed righteousness from God, a righteousness given to us through faith because of our faith in Christ, because of what Christ has done. So Christ perfectly fulfills the law and gives that righteousness to us so that we can be blameless. So here we see the redeemed, the people. They are victorious. They are already in heaven, right? Because again, they are on top of Mount Zion. Zion is in heaven. And that, whenever you see the people of God in the book of Revelation, we are already in heaven. Now, obviously, we're not in heaven yet. But in a sense, we are in heaven. Because Ephesians says we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now because of our union with Christ. So our bodies are here, but united to Christ, our head is in heaven, and where our head is, we will be too. And that brings us to the end of tonight. Uh, next time, uh, Lord willing, in two weeks on the 19th, we're going to look at verses 6 through 13 as we're going to see here these three angels um, announcing messages to those who dwell on the earth.